Hello, and welcome to Potternot, a podcast for new and returning readers with conflicted Harry Potter feelings. I am E, my pronouns are she, they, and I am a reluctant fan. Medela, my pronouns are she, her, and I am a tired fan. And I'm Zoe, she, her, a jaded fan. This week, we will dive into the good and the bad of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, chapters 10 through 12, Mayhem at the Ministry, Aboard the Hogwarts Express, and the Triwizard Tournament. That's the thing. They said the thing. They did say the thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not the Goblet of Fire title of the book, but the, the tournament. The thing. They named the big thing. Is here. This is more of, like, return to form. Yeah. This is, like, getting ready to go to Hogwarts. Getting to Hogwarts. At yep. Hogwarts for the welcome <laughs> feast. Very much. I had put in the general, in our little general chat, that I said, oh shit, we're getting the good stuff in the next three chapters. <laughs> By the good stuff, I meant all the foreshadowing for the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Foreshadowing, which I am still... I still don't have enough pieces to connect no. anything to anything, which is great. But there sure there's a lot of pieces. Yes. So we get some new names. Oh, we get the name of Rita Skeeter, who is mm -hmm. the reporter. We get I don't know if, if this teacher matters, but we get the name of the astronomy teacher. Professor Sinestra. Which we haven't seen before. Uh, maybe that's just flavor. We get Mad-Eye Moody arrives. He um, sure fucking does. Boy, he sure does. Any other names? I mean, we get Colin Creevy's little brother, who is We get Colin Creevy's little important. brother. You say that. I mean, he wouldn't be a named character if he wasn't important, so. <laughs> well, okay, she does. All right, she does. Give she does have all of the first years. 20 yeah. more first year students for no reason. Who we never hear from again. No. I don't. I also don't think we ever hear Dennis's first name again. I think it's after from here on. It's always the Creevy Brothers. Aww. but we also get Durmstrang, which you had written down as as German. E. Um, yeah. Is it not is German? It's Siberian. Wow. Well. Well, that's the assumption because they have fur coats. So the there thing... is no given location for Durmstrang. They don't know what country it's in. But uh. the assumption is that it is somewhere very, very cold because fur coats are part of their uniform. And so the assumption is, like, that it's very Russian. north. Very north. Siberian, Black Sea, somewhere up there. Okay, that is wild. Because the thing that immediately came to mind, and what I would bet money was the inspiration for the name Durmstrang, is the German phrase Sturmundrang. Oh, Which yeah. is like a literary thing about like turbulent, um, like emotional turbulence or, or yeah. high stress. Um, and this is just the letters of that swapped around. That's true. So I was like, oh, well, obviously this is the German school. Including how it's the villainous school. <laughs> yeah, it's the school of the dark arts, basically, which is. Uh, so I had just assumed that JKR was like, right. There are three countries in Europe that matter, and it's England, France, and Germany. And so those are the ones that have schools, and Germany is the evil one. <laughs> it doesn't seem quite that clear, but uh, that's immediately where my mind went. Because we don't know where it is, like, Crumb is Bulgarian, but not all of the students are Bulgarian. Uh -huh. All of them have Slavic accents. 
and the assumption that it is is that it's covering like the eastern bloc states probably east germany and russia okay because that is like just phonetically speaking that is a german word not a slavic one I don't have a good answer for that, but uh, yeah. based on what Hermione says about fur coats being in the uniform, it wouldn't be in Bulgaria yeah. or Germany. It's probably Russian. So it's a Soviet thing, not a Nazi thing. It's also, they arrive in a, in a don't water vehicle. It. Well, eh, <laughs> I won't tell you how they arrive, but it's clearly surrounded by a lot of water. So you're thinking like, what is that? The Black Sea up north? Uh, are we talking like near Russia or near like Norway? Near Russia. I need a map. The Black Sea is <laughs> landlocked. You're probably thinking of the Baltic. Which Baltic is where, sea. like, Lithuania and Estonia and, like, the southern part of Sweden. Yes, it's probably on the Russian Eastern Bloc's side of the Baltic Sea. Gotcha. Based on the fact of how they arrive at the tournament. Anyway, uh, two new schools. So that's fun. My other overarching thought is that... Um, Chapters 11 and 12 are pretty much, or sorry, 10 and 11 are pretty much unnecessary. Yeah. Especially 11. Yeah, there's not much, like, I have experienced this as a fanfiction author, where there's, like, scenes that you know you want to have, or, like, snippets that you Mm -hmm. know you want to have, and you can't think of a good way to move between them, and so you just put in a bunch of filler. Or just, like, daily, mundane stuff to to just get between the things that you want yeah and it feels a lot like that it feels like she needed a better editor like those could have been the same chapter chapter 10 and 11 could have been together in one chapter probably and and better edited yeah yeah because there's a lot of there's a lot of excess in mayhem at the ministry where there's just like it's just rehashing a lot of stuff that we already know about the weasleys yeah like pretty much you could have covered it in like, practically, where Mr. Weasley comes home, which is, like, two pages from the end of this chapter, right. that's really where you could have cut in. And, like, a few days later, like, right. you didn't need the entire coming home and coming back. And Yeah. I had genuinely forgotten that Mrs. Weasley did not go to the World Cup. <laughs> Should we get into some specifics? Yes. Oh, Dizzy, why you bite my finger? <laughs> why? He wants to be involved. He really does. Like my turn on the podcast. Grabbing at my hand out of nowhere. Hello, buddy. There really isn't any plot (laughs) in these three chapters. Uh, The plot is they go to Hogwarts. Yeah, Harry and the gang go back to Hogwarts. Um, There's shit going down at the ministry. Yeah. uh, And then they sort of do and then don't, or don't and then do have a run in with Draco on the train. (laughs) And then it's the feast. That's it. That's the plot. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this, this. This section serves to introduce us to a few like upcoming plot points and then all of the other students and professors. Like you exactly. get a very like step by step introduction of right, here's Neville, here's a comment about Seamus, here's a here's Draco and Crab and Goyle, mm-hmm. here's the professors with a description one by one, which I will add, possibly the worst description of Snape thus far. Yeah. It's like, I don't even want to read the paragraph. It's real bad. Anything particular from chapter 10, Mayhem at the Ministry? I see Uh, Zoe and I both have the note about the clock. (laughs) The clock makes an appearance. 
First time we see the clock in the books. I continue to feel very, very bad about the portrayal of the Weasley's poverty for mm-hmm. all of the reasons we've discussed before. Like we went into this earlier about how it doesn't make any sense and it still yep. doesn't. Yes, I have the notes Ron Sadface in yeah. here, which is he says, Why is everything I own rubbish? said Ron furiously, striding across the yeah. room to unstick Pigwidgeon's beak. I mean, the emotions are correct. Like, I understand being mad that all you have is hand-me-downs. And I understand, you know, the stress of Mrs. Weasley. And, like, your eyes going huge when you hear about, like, a cash prize. Like, I understand those emotions, and I think she gets those right. But... They just don't make sense in the context of the society she's created. And juxtaposed against Harry, who is a kind person, even though he's a you know, idiot 14-year-old. <laughs> like, it's it's contrived that Harry cannot help yeah. the Weasleys with his wealth. This is jumping ahead a little, but the cash prize for the Triwizard Tournament is a thousand galleons. I don't understand. So, <laughs> I don't know I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. I'm fighting a bit of a cold, so my head's in, in like a thousand. A galleon right is like what, like, ten pounds? Well, that's the thing. I don't know. Because they go to the candy shop and they buy candy and it's like five galleons. But if a thousand galleons is something that like, the way that it is used once it is given implies that it is a lot closer to like a hundred thousand dollars. Right. Than a thousand dollars. Like a life changing amount of money. Yes. Whereas books and things routinely cost like anywhere between five and ten galleons. Like, the omnoculars were, omnioculars were ten galleons each. Right. That's all, so, like, the the distribution. If a galleon is, like, ten dollars or ten pounds, then that's a hundred dollars per pair, which is, which makes sense that Harry's buying them because he's rich. Do you think maybe she didn't think about the conversion rate? Do you think? Yeah, like the, a lot yeah. more things should be worth sickles rather and nuts rather than galleons. If a thousand galleons, I think she just forgot that she made up other currencies. Honestly, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like a thousand galleons is supposed to be this like above and beyond amount of money. Yeah, and then if you actually look at it, it doesn't seem to be this above and beyond amount of money. Right. So, like a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. Sounds like sort of a normal prize for for a 17 year like a competition between 17 year olds. Yeah. Like that's money you can put towards university or towards, you know, a, a nice first car or something. But the way that it is used further along in the story implies that the amount that it is worth is much closer to like $100,000. Yeah. Wild. I guess that makes it more clear why like the Weasleys go bananas. Yes. Thinking about it. Uh, there is other uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention from this chapter, which is when Harry finally does tell Hermione and Ron about his dream. Um, it's cute mm. that you know, like their reactions are exactly what he thought they would be. That's very cute. Um, very funny. But there's a line that he says, or that is described, where he says, um, uh, "I was dreaming about him, him and Peter, you know, Wormtail, and I can't remember all of it now, but they were planning to kill." Someone, plotting to kill someone. He had teetered for a moment on the verge of saying, me, but couldn't bring himself to make Hermione look any more horrified than she already did. 
This is something that comes up in the fandom a lot. Like, there's a lot of fanfic where people are just, like, constantly trying to kill Harry. And uh-huh. he just, like, doesn't tell his friends and family about this because... Because he thinks it would stress them out. Yeah, he doesn't want to stress them out. He doesn't want to worry them. And then he takes it all on himself. And then, of course, like, shenanigans happen because it's fanfic. Mm-hmm. But I think I, sh- I just wanted to bring specific notice to this line because it is... It is a very hairy moment in the same way that, like, what was it in the other book where he did it without thought or whatever? He did something very brave and very stupid when he jumped on the troll's back, I think is what it is. This is another one of those lines that is really quintessentially hairy, which this is who Harry is. He does something very brave and very stupid, and he doesn't want to worry his friends. Yeah. Oh, Harry. Oh, Harry. Cool. I think that's it for this chapter. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want to talk about dress robes? Uh, we will talk so much about dress robes. I have thoughts about the movie and the dress robes. My main issue with dress robes, robes is I still don't understand what robes are in themselves. <laughs> yes, I did also write that down, that robes are a ridiculous concept and much improved in the movies, although I wish they'd kept the colors. In the movies, the men's dress yeah. robes are all just... Black. <laughs> they're just like tuxes, basically. But in this, it's implied that like all robes don't have pants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole conversation to be had and that many smarter people than I have had about how masculine fashion became like this extremely boring thing yeah. in the 20th century. And the what you're talking about in the movies is probably an outcome of that. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Where what JKR is actually sort of portraying here in the book is something much more like uh, and this is the aesthetic she draws from constantly is like 15th or century, 16th century fashion. Like the ropes that Ron got. Yeah. Yeah. Like high fashion for both men and women was just extremely gaudy and as colorful as possible and as ornamented as possible. Yeah. And like Harry's dress robes that he gets from Molly are bright, what she calls bottle green. Yeah. Like, where dress clothing would be colorful and eye-catching. I mean, that's what Dumbledore wears all the time. Yeah, he wears a lot of purple. And um, all of the, like, you know, (laughs) I talked about, um, God, what's the Minister of Magic's name? Fudge. Fudge. Whenever he shows up, he's wearing gaudy colors. So there is sort of a consistent implication that formal wear is more colorful than everyday wear. Yeah. Uh... Which is nice. Here's my issue, which is that Mrs. Weasley, either with magic or with literally a seam ripper, could have just taken the lace off of that thing. Yeah. Yes. Which is a thing that poor people who thrift often do. It's also a thing that Ron attempts to do very poorly when he gets to Hogwarts. And Mrs. Weasley could have done it very well at home. Yeah. (laughs) Like the second step in a lot of thrift shopping is minor alterations to the clothes to make them fit you or suit you. So the last bit of this chapter which um zoe already mentioned with the ron and the sad face is like the beginning of ron's bitterness that we talked about in the last episode Mm -hmm. it's just a hint of the the beginning of that which we will see throughout the next few books yeah there's a moment in the books where they're at lunch i'm not spoiling anything because it'll still have the impact when you read it but I think the line is Ron speared a potato and glared at it and said, I hate being poor. Mood. Yep. 
he actually vocalizes this basically from uh-huh. here on out, which I think is really important. I think important. he says something to that effect in these chapters as well. Maybe not as explicitly, but yeah. And there's like a moment where Rod and, where Hermione and Harry are like, I don't know how to respond to this, which is also yeah. real. Like there is no response to that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it fucking sucks. I don't have that same experience. So right. let me know how I can help. On a lighter note, at the beginning of chapter 11, flu powder FaceTime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was very cool. I enjoy that you can feed people through the fire. I would have assumed that the toast would have immediately gotten burnt since it is not magical toast and it is not affected by the flu powder. But that well, does not seem to flames, be a problem. The f- top part of a flame doesn't like burn something immediately. It depends on where the head was in the fire. Yeah. yeah. I say. Um, it's very funny to me that it's just the head and not like a full like hologram, you know, situation. No, you don't understand, E. It's his actual head. It's not a hologram of his head. It's his real head. <laughs> I'm comparing it to like, like hollow communication the yeah. way you see in like sci-fi shows. Yeah, but no, this is his actual head. He sticks his head in the fireplace, and it comes out in the someone else's fireplace. Yeah, very silly. Yeah, it's very fucking buck wild, and sounds <laughs> extremely uncomfortable. Harry has to do it later in this book, and he is like kneeling on the stone floor with his head like shoved into the fire. And it seems like it's an extremely uncomfortable way to do this. Like, they couldn't at least put fireplaces at chest level. Like, you can do that in, like, a cooking fire. Like, why not? Anyway, it's wild to me that that's a thing. Um, They replace it with Patronuses talking to each other at some point because... Oh. Well, not, I guess... Not to each other, but... Not to each other. You can send a Patronus and it will save a message for you, so... Oh, famously what those are for. Yes. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) cool they're on the hogwarts express they have to take some muggle taxis yeah that's That's, like really the only thing that happens in this chapter yeah i was like what else happens in here i realized towards the end of that chapter my only note at the end of that chapter is wait hang on luna isn't in this book no i think luna is in the next we were just talking we were talking so much about luna but i was and we were thinking she was in this book but no she's not until book five apparently cho is though Oh, Cho is, and I don't know, I don't know if you know this, E, but Harry's attracted to women. Yeah. In case you didn't notice. I actually don't mind, we were talking about this in our other Discord, I actually don't mind the descriptions of how Harry is attracted to Cho here. Like, they seem pretty real. Yes, I agree. It is better than the thing that we were talking about in spoilers. Yeah. In the future. (laughs) It's better than what's depicted in book six. This is actually like a fairly this and and in book five are are pretty realistic. Like like you you notice someone in the crowd and you like he has this dream where he like dreams about impressing her. He doesn't really know her, but that's also realistic. Like it it makes sense. So yeah, it's fine. That's that's it. <laughs> Try wizard tournament. Yeah, I have a very simple note that doesn't that is not necess- not important and won't take long. Where does Peeves get his water balloons? Probably Zongos. Does he go to the shop? Does the poltergeist no, but shop? I bet that he gets them from Filch's filched materials. Ah, Filch's like, confiscated materials. <laughs> Just the Weez is like, hey, I bought those. <laughs> um, the list, the list of banned like prank items. Yeah, that Dumbledore mentions is very funny. Do you want to read those up, E? 
Oh, sure. Let me, let me, let me find that sentence. Mr. Filch, the caretaker, has asked me to tell you that the list of objects forbidden inside the castle has this year been extended to include screaming yo-yos, fanged frisbees, and ever-bashing boomerangs. The full list comprises some 437 items, I believe, and can be viewed in Mr. Filch's office if anyone would like to check it. <laughs> it's very good. Um, there's a new sorting song. We haven't actually yeah. gotten one of these since book one. This is only um, our, our second song. I always forget why we didn't see the sorting ceremony in book three. I know we didn't see it, why we didn't see it in book two. Because why don't we he got pulled three? aside because of he fainted on the train and right. to make sure he was yes. Right. You will see a song in five and six. Yes. So this is one of four songs that you see. I am not going to read the entire not one. Six, just five. But anyway. <laughs> no, you do see it in six. <laughs> I want to make one note about this song, which is that uh, the rhyme scheme that JKR is using uh, belies one word that she pronounces a way that I don't. And so me reading it, it tripped me up several times before I figured out how to read the line. Which word is that? So it's in it's in sort of A B A B C D C D rhyming format, where every four lines sort of go together. Mm-hmm. The second of those is Bold Gryffindor from Wild Moor, Fair Ravenclaw from Glen, Sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad, Shrewd Slytherin from Fen. First note: Moor and Broad do not rhyme. Do not have the same vowel for me. Second, she. This only works if you say wild mm. <laughs> with like two distinct syllables. And I was trying to read it like I say wild with like mm-hmm. one syllable. And I was like, Bull Gryffindor from Wildmore. I can't. How does that? Uh, it confused me so long. <laughs> trying to. Anyway, that's not. A-B-A-B. Because one and three never rhyme. It's only two and four. Oh, you're right. A-B-C-B. A-B-C-B. Yeah, Bold Gryffindor from Wildmoor, Fair Ravenclaw from Glen. Yeah. I like the idea that Ron puts forth that the Sorting Hat just spends the entire year composing his ne- its next song. Yeah, it probably does. This is actually, I think, the one where the breakdown of who goes in what house is made clearest. Mm. So it says, by Gryffindor, the bravest were prized far beyond the rest. For Ravenclaw, the cleverest would always be the best. For Hufflepuff, the hard workers were most worthy of admission, and power-hungry Slytherin loved those of great ambition. Yeah. Because in a lot of the other ones, Hufflepuff just takes whoever's left over. But I but like then that there's another one... one where it says Hufflepuff Puff takes, takes the just and loyal. So now you know that they are just, loyal, and hardworking. Yeah, and that's important because I think that there's a lot of like Hufflepuffs are just the catch-all, whatever. Hufflepuffs yeah. are finders. The other ones. <laughs> but it's, it is important that it's not just just and loyal but also that you are willing to put in work. So you uh-huh. can be extremely smart, but if you are, if you like value or you yourself put in more work than you are just sort of like innate brains, then you might end up in Hufflepuff rather than Ravenclaw. And I think that that's sort of an important aspect. It's an interesting distinction to make for Hufflepuff. I think we talked about it way back at the beginning when we were talking houses about like how. Like, you don't want to say Ravenclaw is only the house of naturally intelligent people, nor that, you know, Gryffindor is the house of naturally courageous people or whatever. But then if hard work goes on on the hard work thing specifically. Yeah. 
So they're talking about Peeves and Nearly Headless Nick is saying that Peeves wreaked havoc and mayhem, pots and pans everywhere, placed swimming in soup, terrified the house elves out of their wits, playing. Hermione had knocked over her golden goblet, pumpkin juice spread, blah, blah, blah. There are house elves here, here at Hogwarts? Certainly, said Nearly Headless Nick, looking surprised at her reaction. The largest number in any dwelling in Britain, I believe, over 100. And so then they do fires, they see do the cleaning, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Hermione stared at him. But they get paid, she said. They get holidays, don't they? And, and sick leave and pensions and everything. Sick leave and pensions, he said, pushing his head off his shoulders and securing it once more with his ruff. House elves don't want sick leave and pensions. Slave labor, said Hermione, breathing hard through her nose. That's what made this dinner, slave labor. And she refused to eat another bite. Another line from that conversation that I uh, highlighted was when Nearly Headless Nick says, that's the mark of a good house self, isn't it? That you don't know it's there. Um, she's correct. She is correct. Um, Is this a wizard's know and assume this and muggles and muggle-born don't? Where, like... Oh, you mean with Hermione asking these questions? Yeah, where, like... I think so. Ron or other, like, wizarding family kids would just sort of have assumed that it was house elf labor. Yeah. And Harry and Hermione would have just, like, assumed it was magic or, you know, employees. Yeah. Um, I think Harry definitely assumed it was magic. Yeah. Hermione probably didn't assume it was magic. Um, and she gets really angry that there's no reference in Hogwarts of History. Yeah. There's very little reason for them to assume that it would not be magic. So, obviously, we're going to talk more about house elves and the major problems with the way that they were written in this story. Yeah. Which we've already touched on briefly. Yes. We're going to get more into that in this book and probably talk about it more as well in book five. But I would like to say I have a lot of thoughts about Hermione. I know it's just beginning now, but I guess you're starting to see that Hermione is going to continue to have an issue with this. Mm -hmm. So I think I would like to bring up all my points now to keep, to keep them in mind as we keep seeing her. Sure. I'd like to mention one thing, which might be something that you have as well, which is that the thing that chafes on me the most in this scene and also earlier is the way that the both the narrative and the other characters react to Hermione. Yep. Which is sort of this, like, you're young, you don't understand the way of the world. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't try to elevate this class of people above their station. And that last bit is the part that really grates on me because it's so reminiscent of like uh, historical arguments against abolition and also like real arguments in like the labor movement and even now people trying to argue for like minimum wage or protections for workers which is that oh they're just flipping burgers they don't deserve like health insurance for that job yeah right And, like, trying to frame the labor class as undeserving of higher pay and, you know, benefits for their job is sort of the through line I get here. And I don't know if that's, I mean, like most things, probably not a parallel that the author is intentionally drawing, but it feels very, like... I mean, it's just gross. It's gross. It's, it's, gross. it's, it's bad all the way around. 
Um, and I, I really hate how much it parallels those sort of real life arguments. Yes. So as I was trying to articulate my thoughts on this, I ended up writing a whole page of notes. <laughs> Would you like to hear it? Absolutely. Hermione and activism. In this essay, I will. One, there's no way Hermione's activism can be flawless because of the messy and disgusting way that house elves were written in this world. And she's a child. Yes, well, yes. Um, but the fact that house elves supposedly want to be enslaved. That is the main thing. Two, the problem with Hermione's activism is that it's classic Christian missionary style activism, as in there's no room mm. for listening to the house elves' desires and needs. Hermione believes she knows better than them and forces her activism on them, sometimes in really gross and manipulative ways in the future. Three, we, we can all agree with Hermione that house elf slavery is wrong, but to agree with the way she tries to help them is a very colonial perspective, aka I, I know what's best for you, just do what I want you to do and your life will become better. That's a problem. And there's like, it, it goes even beyond that. Oof. Four, the way that JKR has written how self-enslavement makes it extremely difficult to see any other choice than Hermione's or leaving it as it is because she insists and the Wizarding Society insists and how selves themselves insist that they want to be slaves. That is the core problem gotcha. of yeah. all of this. The worst thing about the way house elves are written, in my opinion, is that they want to be where they are. Yeah. On a slightly unrelated note, but related to what you were talking about, E, Hermione's activism is written as a joke. Everyone mm -hmm. mocks it and criticizes her for it, always saying like they want to be enslaved or just rolling their eyes. I don't know if we as the readers are meant to sympathize with Hermione or laugh at her. I think we're supposed to laugh at her. Yeah, I feel like the way that her activism is written in book four and five is from the perspective of a conservative complaining about so-called social justice warriors, and I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, I think you're right, but I think that that doesn't hold true in book seven. No. But I think you're not supposed to laugh at her by the time you get to book seven, even though she still holds these same ideals because it becomes less about a group and more about an individual. Yeah, it's a, it becomes different there. Yeah. But. I think here is where I will like make a reference to how Hermione's been written so far, which is that like she's often treated as a joke in that mm -hmm. her ideas and thoughts about how the world works are detached from what the other characters consider reality. So like she wants to follow the, the rules, yeah. even though no school students follow the rules. Or she thinks that being expelled is a punishment worse than death, which mm -hmm. is, you know, not how the world works for most people. And so because she's so often framed as like her priorities are out of whack. Yeah. This sort of follows that with like, this is a nonsense priority for her to have. Yeah, it's all bad. I can't believe that the author managed to make a situation so bad that you can't side with the activist. Yeah. Because it's, it's so bad all around. It's really, really bad. And it gets worse. Like Adela's comment about the type of activism, like we'll get, we'll get there. It gets yeah. worse. It gets yeah. worse. I, I have so many issues, despite the fact that like, 
she's right, but... There'll be another chapter in this book where we'll talk about house elves a lot again, but then in book five is where we see some of the worst ways that Hermione is behaving Yeah, in this pursuit. Like, and it's not that, like, civil rights or social justice activists aren't complicated people with complicated mm-hmm. stances or methods of, of activism, of course, of course. I don't think that the author was writing Hermione to be doing the right yeah. thing in her point of view. That does not seem how it's framed. That Hermione is doing a good thing in a bad way, which is your point. Yeah, that's what her in general. Yeah. Just, just the whole way everything is written on this entire subject. So anyway, Mad-Eye Moody is here and we have another bad topic to talk about. Mad-Eye is- Moody has arrived... Uh, and we read, well, I read portions of, and Adela and Zoe read the entire Illness and Disabilities page from Pottermore. We sure did. Which is a can of worms. Uh-huh. So the author, like, on this page is basically talking about how this is an interesting Pottermore page in that she is talking directly about her creative process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which in the past we have liked. We have liked the, like, from JKR's notes things. And I like the beginning of this. I don't like the conclusions she reaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the beginning of this is good. She says, I decided that, broadly speaking, wizards would have the power to correct or override quote-unquote mundane nature, but not quote-unquote magical nature. Therefore, a wizard could easily catch a, th- a thing a muggle might catch, but he could cure all of it. He would also comfortably survive a scorpion sting that might kill a muggle, whereas he might b- die by bit- if bitten by a venomous tentacula. Similarly, bones broken in a non-magical accident, such as falls or fist fights, can be mended by magic, but the consequences of curses or backfiring magic could be serious, permanent, or life-threatening. That's good. Like, the questions, the questions she's asking at the top are the right questions to ask. Do wizards catch colds? Can they cure illnesses that, you know, muggle doctors haven't? found cures for were there disabled wizards what are the limits of medicine like those are important questions to consider when you're developing a magic system and the broad answer that like wizards can cure mundane illnesses but like can't fix everything magical is a pretty good one it does bring up a lot of questions when you get into like what is she talking about when she says mundane illnesses because there is a lot of different there are a lot of different kinds of disability yeah, so then she takes a pivot toward... There's temporary illnesses, or, or like, there's illness and injury. Yeah. Those can be automatically cured by magic. That, to me, seems fine. Right. What about chronic illness? What about... Yeah. I don't what mean... about something you're born with? What about neurodivergence? Yeah, what about, like, psychiatric illnesses? And it seems like her... I mean, she doesn't go into it because it does not seem like she thought about it. But mm-hmm. she does mention Lupin and HIV and makes the much more clear parallel here that she wanted the stigma from the disease HIV. Yeah. And not the gay part. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> makes sense for knowing her. <laughs> yep. I mean, she's not even thinking about the gay part. Yeah. Like, she's specifically saying management of a chronic condition mm-hmm. and then she mentions mad eye moody a man who was quote very much more than his significant disabilities and uh-huh mm-hmm. so let's let's go over the disabilities 
Moody is missing some or all of a leg and one eye and also definitely has some trauma. <laughs> and some trauma and a lot of scars. And the trauma is discussed in actually one of the chapters we read. It's, it's discussed pretty heavily in Mayhem at the Ministry. Yeah. Where we first are introduced to Meta. Or, yes. or maybe it's aboard the first bit of no, it's, the Hogwarts it's... Express. No, yeah, yeah, it is aboard the Hogwarts it's Express. It's like the first page or two of the, aboard the Hogwarts Express. It's the head in the fire. It's Mr. Diggory saying gotcha. something happened to Mad-Eye. Why today? He starts his new job today. So you see and he, Diggory is describing. Um, so what happened is apparently somebody broke into his home or that's what Mad-Eye is claiming and set off his dustbins, which were apparently, I don't know, programmed, I was going to say, but, you know, like enchanted in some way enchanted is the word i'm looking for they were fucking programmed um yep here we go mad i didn't use his wand this is mr weasley he didn't actually attack anyone i'll bet he leapt out of bed and started jinxing everything he could reach through the window said mr diggory but they'll have a job proving it there weren't any casualties and so later on they talk about like he's gone through so much and he has so many enemies and he's caught so many quote-unquote bad guys Mm -hmm. um that he's got a lot of trauma and he's super paranoid. He's super yep. paranoid. It's it's a pretty clear parallel to like war veteran PTSD. A hundred percent. That's what he is. He is, yeah. he is yes. a war veteran. He, he specifically he fought in the first war against Voldemort. Yeah. So obviously magic can't cure PTSD. No, although there's some really, really great headcanons in Fick because Fick picks up where the epilogue leaves off and is like, great, these people are coupled up and have children. What if they also have trauma because they went through a war? Yeah. The fic I actually linked that we linked last week, which um, shout out to Julia who live texted me through her reading of it. (laughs) There is a moment with a there's only one bed and she texted me in a rage being like, they haven't kissed yet and there's only one bed. And I was like, yeah. Amazing. The point is that um, in that fic, there's actually a character takes regular potions to help manage anxiety. And I read another fic recently where Hermione and Ron can't find a therapist uh, because they are too famous. Yeah. And so there's no one that they can go to. Yeah. Who could treat them without like bias. Yeah. And so they end up putting all of their issues onto Harry, who is like coming out of all of this whole series, like fairly well measured because he grew up in abusive childhood. And so he has a better way of absorbing and understanding his trauma, at least in this fic. Um, except if you wake him up suddenly, at which point he will immediately pull his wand from underneath his pillow and hex you. And so there's like different people deal with different trauma really interestingly in the mm-hmm. fix um, in a way that they absolutely obviously do not in any at all part of the canon yeah yeah (laughs) and some of it's interesting and some of it is too real like i have had to close out a fix and be like this one is just about ptsd and i'm gonna close it because i don't want that on my brain right and that's obviously personal preference some people understand themselves to be able to read those kinds of things i know that I cannot read those kind of things without falling myself into a depression. So like, please yeah. enter that area of fic at your own understanding and please back out of them if they do not work for you. But the point being that like d- disability and illness and mental health conditions are handled way better across fandom, which of course is yeah. not surprising. But I will say I have seen very few things about disability yeah. in fandom. I've seen a lot of things about illness, including yeah. chronic illness and sort of like, what it takes to sort of have this 
potion regimen that works way better than mungle medicine, but still doesn't completely cure. It's, it's an effective treatment that you might not have like chronic pain for us, for muggles, right? Mm-hmm. We can't cure it and the treatments are only so good. Right. Um, but like magic has a completely effective treatment. You just have to keep taking it. It's sort of how the fandom has You talk it. about like managing a yeah. chronic condition rather than curing it. Yes. And the idea is that magic can effectively and truly manage a chronic condition, but that you still have it. At least that's across what I've read in the fandom. Makes sense to me. Yeah, which totally makes sense. And is based on what she's saying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But disability, disability is left behind. Is eyesight, bad eyesight, a mundane condition? Because there are a lot of wizards with, yeah, with glasses. I mean, unless it was caused directly by magic, like... I feel like Dumbledore and, like, McGonagall are just, like, older age. Like, eyes, eyesight fading is why they're wearing glasses. Well, it seems like you can't... Magic doesn't fix senility and old age. It can no, prolong. It could, fix, it could fix, like, your eyes. Like, if you... I, it, it probably could fix, like, arthritis. That's true. I would imagine. I know that the glasses are just aesthetic, but it's just a funny... I mean, thing. it's a case of, <laughs> once again, the author not thinking things through. Yeah. Um, I would like to shout out Steven Universe at this moment. There's a great episode of Steven Universe where Steven finds out that he can heal with his... He has healing powers. I'll just not give it away. Um, And he accidentally heals his best friend slash girlfriend slash... Partner in mundane crime. Yeah, partner (laughs) in mundane crime. Um, He heals Connie, except that there's nothing wrong with Connie, except that as soon as he heals her, and they don't even realize it for a moment, she doesn't need her glasses. Which is like one of those little moments where I was like, ah, yes. As someone who has had to wear glasses since the fifth grade. I mean, like eyesight problems is the most common like disability. And it's not thought of as a disability because it's so common. So many people deal with it and we have societal structures in place to deal with it. And then other disabilities are just not considered in that way to the point where like disability activists you know across the world are still trying to fight for access and healthcare. Hogwarts is not um, an accessible school and I think JKR's assumption is that there are no disabled students. I mean I think we've talked about this before with the staircases where like if you had you know a physical disability you know affecting your ability to walk or climb stairs it could technically accommodate you. I think it absolutely could accommodate you. The fact that it isn't already accommodated is the problem. Yes. Like the language that I see, um, I personally happen to follow disability activists in the realm of gaming. And the, the, the thing that I see them saying a lot is that like accessibility has to be step one. Like mm-hmm. it has to be part of your design from the get-go. It can't just be something you slap on at the end and say, oh yeah, we added subtitles or... Oh yeah, we added in. this. We added this filter that should make it better for colorblind users. Like you have to think about that from the outset of your design to make it like really inclusive. I've just pulled up archive of our own just out of curiosity. I have never searched uh-huh. for fix that center around disability, but there are a lot of fix that center around disability. There is quite a lot. There's ones where disability management 
focusing on Draco. Uh, oh, actually, I have read things about magical disability. The big magical disability that I've seen in the fandom is what if you can't do magic or a particular kind of magic anymore? Mm. Or what if your magic gets taken away or weakened in some way? And there's mm. actually a really fantastic fic that I really, really love where Harry and Draco are like in their 50s and reconnect as professors at Hogwarts and fall deeply in love and it's very cute. But the big thing is that Harry can't apparate. He was hit by a permanent curse. And if he apparates, he will disintegrate into nothingness. Mm. He will essentially vanish. Yeah. And so he is considered disabled because he has to, he can't do this kind of magic that everyone can do. And I think that that is not what we're talking about. And I think, I, I think it's important to draw the line here because... Yeah. Because Harry can still fundamentally access and be part of society. Yeah. Yes, it is harder for him to do so because he can't just go to places very quickly. He has to take a port key or he has to flew, which is still fast, but it's not the same. It's mm-hmm. different, but, but it's not in not... a way that like a deaf person in the Correct. United States has to constantly consider whether they have access. Yes. I think it's important while we're talking about magic and disability that we draw the line that we are talking about disabilities that we as humans outside of this physical world could experience and that people in this physical world do experience on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. We are not talking about magical disability yeah. here, although that is something we could cover at a later date. I do, and I don't know if any characters with neurodivergence or physical disability like show up throughout the series. My guess is that you're never going to see neurodivergent characters. Yeah, physical disability, no, never on the page. Neurodivergent is like headcanon. Yeah. It's not canon, but it is about as explicit as you can get without being canon. Yeah, I mean, my guess is that the author like many non-disabled people, has the internalized opinion that disability is something to be overcome. Oh, 100%. Which is, like, you can see it in this line on the, on the bottom of page, like, more than his significant disabilities. I think that the exception here is Lupin, mm-hmm. which comes, it comes later, it comes later, it comes okay. like at the end of book seven, there's, like, a whole thing. But I think that there is a werewolf exception that we can talk about later. Yeah down way way down the line not lupin now but like way way down the line but is that again a like magical disability yeah it is i think so but i think that that's the only instance where it's not something to be overcome well i don't know i think i'm just going to contradict myself and say just flat out not even magical disability i think you're right yeah because even mad eye moody's disabilities are i mean he's an amputee yeah and that itself is a mundane thing just the fact that the reason she cites that he can't it can't be changed is because he got them through magic like that happened because of magic but the disability itself is still a mundane disability (sighs) it doesn't make sense is my point (laughs) that i've been making trying to make this whole time it doesn't make sense and you can tell that the author has these bad like perceptions of disability and Mm -hmm. the way that disabled people live and I don't want to see her write, you know, an autistic character or, you know, a character who, you know, needs mobility aids or a character who's deaf or blind or a little bit. Like, I don't want to see her yeah. do that because it will be bad. Yeah. And 
the lesser of two very bad evils here is just a book where everyone is abled. Yep. Which is basically what it is. Yeah, I will say the character that via headcanon is neurodivergent is written fine. Yeah. But I think probably is written fine because JR didn't say, oh, by the way, this character is autistic yeah. or is on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. This character is just written the way that this character is written. And in headcanon, everyone went, oh, that resonates with my experience as a neurodivergent person or whatever. Right. I think we've covered this topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Should we talk just a couple things about the tournament to close out the episode? Yeah. yeah. I'd like to read a comment that E has put in our chat, which is I'm sure Harry ha ends up as the Hogwarts competitor, but the adults are, as usual, fucking right about the age limit. <laughs> this is a lovely prediction. Thank you for your thoughts. Yeah, do not confirm or deny it, but I. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't see any way that that's not the case. It's a great prediction. We're not going to confirm or deny, but I will say that the way that it is enforced, the way that the age limit is enforced is fucking hilarious. I love yeah. it. <laughs> There's some genuinely interesting things that pop up in this chapter. The way that the tournament is talked about is interesting. The thing that I like, we didn't talk basically at all about the Avoid the Hogwarts Express because nothing happens. But I enjoy the camaraderie of everybody sort of coming back together and hanging out in the train car. Yeah. This is um, something that we get again and again, obviously. I was just going to say, same with when they first when they get up to their dorm after the feast. Um, Seamus had pinned his Ireland rosette to his headboard, and Dean had tacked a poster of Victor Crumb over his bedside table. His old poster of the West Ham football team was pinned right next to it. Um, nice. Which I... It's just... It's fun. It's... There's some it's fun good. things still happening, and I just want to highlight that because... Yes. Overall... Yeah more enjoyable set of chapters than the previous ones. Yes. I do want to highlight something that you said before we really started recording E, though, is that um, I'm going to ask a really big question that I don't expect you to answer. Okay. Are you becoming a fan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so before we recorded, we were talking about our intro and the little adjectives we used to describe ourselves, and I was like, maybe I need to change mine, because I keep dunking on this series and the author it's hard my relationship to the word fan is a complicated one it's a big word it's a big word it's hard for me to separate fan from fandom yeah and like being in that social context of being a fan in a fandom like i'll i'll <laughs> we'll pull back the curtain of the week we're recording this uh the uh supernatural <laughs> just ended this week <laughs> my whole high school friend group was watching it live streaming it and i was working and i came home to like th our group chat just exploding oh yeah <laughs> like i was a fan of yeah. that show in like 2012 or whatever like i was in that fandom and that fandom taught me a lot about fan culture and fanfic authorship and critical media consumption which is why i stopped watching the show because <laughs> i learned how to think about media and it turns out it's a bad one <laughs> same it's hard for me to separate the experience of being in a fandom in that way mm -hmm. from describing myself as a fan and so because i sort of missed the boat i mean there's still a harry potter fandom obviously but i sort of missed the boat on being in the fandom even if i were wholeheartedly getting into the books right now i don't know 
where I would stand on that. E walking into the club of bitter old fans being like, I just read them, but I am on your side. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very fair. And like I like I said, I, I don't actually, don't know that I even would want you to have a definitive answer here because I just don't think that there yeah. is one. I think that I will still keep using that word, you know, in our intros because it's tidy and it's close enough for the mix of feelings that I'm developing about this series. You are enjoying it. You are not necessarily I'm a fan of it. it. But I don't think I'm a fan. When you asked that question, Zoe, I was thinking about how, like, my relationship also <laughs> with being a fan. And I think that I am more, now I am more a fan of the experience of reading Harry Potter and of the fandom than I am a fan of Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, I think that totally makes sense. I would like to answer this question myself then, I guess, to, yeah. to close us out on this conversation, which is, I think I'm still a fan of Harry Potter, but I think that it is not possible to separate Harry Potter from its author. Yeah. But as much as it is possible to do so, I'm a fan of the character Harry Potter mm -hmm. and the books and the canon with all of their issues and not a fan of the author. And I think that I couldn't, I, I'm not sure that I couldn't be a fan. Yeah. Like looking back and looking at my experience. Yeah. The, the love that I have for this, even when I hate it. Yeah. Is so strong that I don't think I could be something other than a fan. Yeah. I think that's what I meant by I I love I am a fan of the experience of okay, reading yeah, Harry yeah, Potter. Yeah. That's yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. exactly what you're saying is what I was thinking when I said that. Yeah, and I'm I'm totally with you. Because I just don't think that like yeah, exactly. I'm a fan of the experience because and I think that it's so I was on this panel, um, this Jane Austen panel, we were talking about the difference between fan and scholar. And right mm -hmm. now what we're doing is essentially scholarly work, right? Yeah. Um, we are doing critical close reading work. And that's also important to note here, that that is what we are doing with our podcast. And, and thank you so much for joining us. But the word fan is looked down on in scholarship. And being a fan is looked down on in scholarship for a huge number of reasons, but partly because the word fan comes from the word fanatic. Yep. And it has a different context now than it did when it came from the word fanatic although it still has that context within it. It does sort but, of carry the connotation of, like, non-critical, and I mean critical yeah. in the, like, scholarly way, non-critical engagement. But even non-critical, well, I would say, no, you're right. I was going to say, even though, like, just note making, saying that there's no problems with it, that's such a lie. I was thought for two seconds about the Star Trek fandom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the people who use it, like, derogatory, probably would say that but i think that it's important to note that like i'm not sure we're using it in like we are fans because we are a fan we oh man how do you define this without using the word we it's what adela <laughs> said i'm trying to say the same thing what adela said but like in a larger context right we are enjoying remembering enjoying reading we love the the feeling of reading but we also love the feeling of being critical about it mm-hmm mm -hmm. I don't know. This is just on my mind, and I thought I'd bring yeah. it up because it's it's just been in my brain a lot lately, especially as we like 
get deeper into the books that I love in this series. Like I had so many issues with book three, but I left it really high in my list in my ranking. Right. And I have so many issues with book four, but I am falling deeper in love with it in very specific ways. I am finding little passages and moments that make me smile and have these memories attached to them. Even while I hate the author more and more and more every day that passes and I've become more critical of the larger systemic issues across these books, but I'm still falling in love with it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's part of the fan experience. I mean, there's a reason that like meta posting is such a huge part of like online fandoms. People just like really enjoying getting into the, into the weeds on, you know, not quite scholarly criticism, but but sometimes, yeah, scholarly criticism and like taking apart the thing you love can be part of loving that thing. Yeah. Which is what scholarship is. In An a important ways. part of loving that thing. Yeah. An important part of loving that thing. And why, <laughs> not to beat this dead horse again, but even in the year of our Lord 2020, would probably still describe myself as a supernatural fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because despite the vehement hatred I have for the show. <laughs> And most of the aspects of it. And the fandom of it. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> was and remain in some part of me of part of that fandom. And there are things that then and now I found to care about. About, you know, the show and fellow fans of it. Yeah. Me for, forever trying to forget that I was a fan of Sherlock too. And God, that I know that when I watched it, I loved it so much. Yep. <laughs> And I know that if I watched it now, I would not, but also maybe I would, and I'm worried about that. (laughs) My turn on that show was probably record-setting for me and a piece of media going from, this is really cool, to, my god, I hate this, (laughs) while still being a fan of it. Anyway. Yeah, I just, it's been on my brain since I did that panel, and since you brought it up before we started recording, I I just, especially as we get more critical, I, I don't know, I think that it's important to mention. It is important, especially after we do an episode where we, like, really... Where we truly lambast the whole thing. Two episodes where we do that, yeah. <laughs> really. Three, <Multiple>. really. <laughs> Every episode. <laughs> like, multiple aspects of the thing that are seriously wrong. Anyway, this is a tournament book and it's a great tournament. So I think, <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a fun thing. I'm hoping that there are some sections in here that don't contain blatantly problematic elements that I that we can just like have a nice one. There definitely are. <laughs> there's whole tournament chapters. E, there's like entire bits where there's nothing happening but action. Listen, <laughs> you never know. The action could be horrifically racist. That's, you know. <laughs> On that note, we are going to be reading two chapters again for our next section. It's another doozy. It's a, it's a smaller section, but there's going to be... M- more ridiculous more world building because yeah. the chapters we are reading are 13 and 14 mad eye moody and the unforgivable curses Woohoo! so you can sort of see from the idea of the second chapter name that there might be some shit going on can't wait to get into the unforgivable curses um there's actually uh, there, oh, wow a lot happens in this chapter it's gonna be really interesting to see what you say um, about this stuff. So there we have it. There um, we have it. 
Thank you so much for listening. As always, I have been E. You can find me at CEL10E on Twitter. I am Adela. You can find me at Aredel, A-R-E-D-H-E-L underscore underscore. I am so sorry for the construction noises outside my window. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me. I'm Zoe. You can find me on Twitter at Zoe Topaz, Z-O-E-T-O-P-A-Z. Buy my book, Ostentatious, The Evolving World of Jane Austen Fans, wherever books are sold. And on my Twitter, there is a pinned tweet where you can watch the panel that I was on about Jane Austen and fandom, which had some really interesting questions about like the future of Jane Austen fandom um, and scholarship and where we see sort of the Austenites and Janeites of the world in uh, four years, which is the bicentennial of her death and in 75 years, which is the tricentennial of her birth. Hey, want to give us a hot take on that CW show announcement? I'm so excited. There's going to be a CW show that's adapting Jane Austen shit and it's going to be bad and I'm going to watch all of it. (laughs) So look forward to our spin-off series. (laughs) And you can find the show at Potternot on Twitter and Tumblr. And you can find music by Morgan Jackson, who did our fabulous theme, at wedidthetimewarpagain.bandcamp.com. Bye! Bye. Be safe, everybody! I just want to know who they're going to cast as Mr. Darcy. I want to know who they pull from the like attractive CW warehouse to play Mr. Darcy. That's all I want. Who, who would be your pick? I don't think I know enough actors of the correct age. But, That's fair. Um, I think actually my pick to play Mr. Darcy is a guy who played Mr. Darcy already on Colin the Lizzie Bennet. No. <laughs> yes, always. Always. Um, just turn back the clock a little bit. No, uh, there's a no old Colin for old Colin. Hey, you where they're old. <laughs> you know what? I would watch the fuck out of that because there would be some really interesting societal implications about uh, Elizabeth Bennet getting married in like her fifties. <laughs> wow, I really want that now. Um, <laughs> Write the fanfic, Zoe. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can. There was a really great YouTube series called The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, and yes. the that's actually the whole way that this Jane Austen book started. I recommend that everybody go and watch it and also make sure that you keep track of what episode you're on and watch the Lydia Bennett series yes. that's part of that as well as you're going through. There is a, a playlist that has all of them, including the Lydia, yes. Lydia Bennett stuff. And I think it has it in order, which is really important. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. We'll link to the, the playlist if we can find it. But the guy who plays Mr. Darcy in that, I think actually makes an incredible oh, yeah. Mr. Darcy. He and does. he would be about the right age, um, assuming that they're going to put things like cast people in their 30s to play people in their 20s, which is usually what they do. He's uh-huh. actually the exact right age. And I think that he would do a great job and he fits the like attractive CW warehouse build. So I think Excellent. that he could do a great job. Um, I also would really like to see Donald Glover. I would love to see Donald Glover play Ooh. Mr. Darcy. I know that he doesn't really do serious, but... I think he could really play up. I don't know what they're going to do on the CW. Let me be clear. But I think that Donald Glover's like ability to sort of flip between serious and comedy would be really good. And his really good pull. He already has this like great critique of society that he does in his music and that he's done in talks and things. And I think that he would actually fit a Jane Austen build really well, depending on what they do in the CW. So 
there's my casting. Everybody go watch the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and then buy my book.